0: bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here's our host, investigative history writer, Michael T. Keene.
1: Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keane, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked how you can pick up a, a copy of uh, our book, New York City's Heart Island, A Cemetery of Strangers, or our audio book, which is narrated by Norma Jean Gratzky. and you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. In George Apo's world, child pickpockets swarmed the crowded streets, addicts drifted in furtive opium dens, and expert swindlers worked the lucrative green goods game. On a good night, Apo made as much as a skilled laborer made in a year. Bad nights left him with more than a dozen scars and over a decade in prison. The child of Irish and Chinese immigrants, Apo grew up in the notorious Five Points and Chinatown neighborhoods. Here is the underworld of the New York that gave us Edith Wharton, Boss Tweed, Central Park, the Brooklyn Bridge, and ultimately Heart Island. Timothy Guilfoyle is an American historian from New York, who is a professor of history at Loyola University, Chicago, where he teaches American urban and social history. He earned his PhD in history at Columbia University. He's the former president of the Urban History Association. His academic research is mainly concerned with the evolution of 19th century, underworld, subcultures, and informal economies. And he's here today to primarily talk about his book, A Pickpocket's Tale. And Professor Gilfoyle, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you?
2: Very good. And, and thank you for having me on your show,
1: Mike. Oh, it, it's our pleasure. I, I just want to kind of state from the outset that we're working under a little duress. Uh, literally, as we speak, the Blue Angels are flying over Professor Gilfoyle's house. <laughs> so if you happen to hear a sonic boom, uh, it's not the police trying to break in. Um, <laughs> although, from from the, your work, uh, Professor Grillfoil, I would say we can't necessarily rule that out. Um, tell me, what um, what led you to kind of concentrate uh, your research efforts on what I would call the underbelly of nineteenth century New York history?
2: Well, Mike, I think that uh, in any society. Uh, The treatment of of crime and criminal individuals uh, raises uh, fundamental questions about uh, that society. Uh, And that's what uh, originally uh, provoked my my interest uh, in 19th century New York and in its 19th century criminal underworld. Uh, Questions about what is good, what is evil, uh, how do you define crime? What is justice or injustice? Uh, How do you create a good society? Um, How is this done in the past? Uh, These are all fundamental questions that really any historian uh, has to to ask. And uh, particularly in regards to crime or illicit, illegal, illegitimate activity, however you want to, whatever label you want to use, Uh, it raises fundamental questions about that society and and its history. And ultimately, those questions can become very political, very personal. Uh, How do we fit into that that history? Uh, Am I a good person, a bad person? Uh, Ultimately, who am I? And so I I think that broad uh, explanation uh, points to why I was interested in uh, exploring the 19th century underworld in New York.
1: And and the story of George Appo, um, of course, is the centerpiece of a pickpocket's tale. Can you tell us who he was?
2: Uh, sure. Well, my my interest uh, in Appo was generated by a a, a single document. Uh, he near the end of his life wrote a uh, a crude autobiography, uh, which is sitting in an archive uh, in New York, uh, specifically at Columbia University. Uh, It's a 99-page typewritten uh, stream of consciousness uh, document. There's only six paragraph breaks in the entire 99 pages. Uh, It's typewritten, Uh, but it gives a very vivid account, a first-person account uh, of what it was like to live in the 19th century criminal universes uh, of New York. In a sense, it's a bit like a 19th century version of Nicholas Pelleggi's wise guy that became the basis for the the movie Goodfellas. And uh, Apo, uh, although he's been largely forgotten today was uh, one of the uh, earliest, what we might call today professional criminals. Uh, His life is uh, really an exemplary life of what it was like to live uh, in the 19th century underworld. And uh, as you mentioned, he was He came from a racially mixed background. His mom was an Irish immigrant. Uh, His father was a Chinese immigrant. Both of them had somewhat interesting lives themselves, Uh, but he was roughly generally abandoned by them uh, through various circumstances he couldn't control as a child. And then grew up uh, literally on the streets in in Five Points, which was the most uh, infamous uh, 19th century ghetto, if you want to use that word, uh, in the United States. Uh, never went to school a day in his life. Uh, eventually, became a newsboy uh, before the age of ten. And as a, working as a newsboy, his fellow uh, compatriots taught him how to pickpocket, and that began his nearly three-decade life as a as a pickpocket. Um, so he didn't have didn't have any of the traditional institutions that uh, we associate with nineteenth-century. American life, and especially American mobility. There's there's no family for him. There's no economic or employment opportunities. The, the church is non-existent uh, in his life, and he has no educational opportunities. So his his uh, his life in many ways reflects some of the same kinds of structural problems that exist uh, in criminal underworlds today, or at least in criminal subcultures, what we would call criminal subcultures, the lack of family structures and employment opportunities and educational uh, institutions. And as he went and grew into adulthood, he went into other kinds, of what were called sure thing graphs, uh, more lucrative uh, criminal activities that were less risky than, than picking pockets that led to his involvement in the green goods game, which we can talk about a little bit later. Uh, And eventually he even became an opium addict. So his life is, in many ways, it's the first uh, involvement with a kind of underground drug subculture, which uh, becomes very prevalent in in the 20th century. Um, And so he's uh, going to opium dens uh, as a young man. Uh, He's participating even in medical research on opium smoking, some of the first medical work that's done on open smoking. He's, uh, he's one of the subjects. Uh, he eventually gets involved with uh, some off-Broadway uh, plays on vaudeville, where he's asked to play himself on stage during, during the 1890s. Uh, and he gets, as you mentioned, he's, he's arrested numerous times, more than a dozen times. He ends up in eight different kinds of prisons, spends roughly a total of a decade. Uh, in prison, uh, experiences many kinds of uh, incarceral experiences where he's uh, uh, in the harsh uh, penitentiaries of places like Sing Sing in New York and Eastern State State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, and then in much lax institutions such as Blackwell's Island uh, in New York. So in in many ways, his his life uh, speaks to the variety of, of incarceration experiences, the, the rise of that carceral society that we often talk a lot about uh, today. Uh, and so his, his life serves as a kind of prism, a window, a uh, vantage point into the, the 19th century criminal subcultures.
1: You mentioned that his parents had an interesting background. How so? Uh-huh.
2: Well, his... Uh, It's a little unclear as to where his um, mom and dad met, Uh, but his father, uh, Chang Quimbo Apo, uh, came to the United States in the late 1840s. It might be not inaccurate to refer to him as a 49er. Uh, He works briefly as a tea merchant in San Francisco at a time when there's very, very few Chinese immigrants uh, in San Francisco in 47, 48, and then in, in 49, he moves into the gold fields. Uh, he has, uh, an ex- uh a, a near death experience where a group of men attack him and his friend, they kill his friend. He uh, allegedly killed somebody, uh, one of his taggers in self-defense. And somehow he ends up fleeing the gold fields, ends up in New Haven, Connecticut of all places, Uh, There, he probably met Catherine Fitzpatrick. Uh, He ran a tea store in uh, New Haven, Uh, actually appears, an advertisement for his tea store appears uh, in the New Haven City Directory uh, in the mid-1850s. So he had to be somewhat of a prosperous merchant. And uh, his son, George Washington Apo, uh, named after the first president, It's a reflection that uh, Quimbo Apo was very interested in assimilating and becoming uh, an American citizen. Uh, He's born on the Fourth of July, uh, 1856, and shortly thereafter they moved to New York. And uh, his wife uh, allegedly was suffering from alcoholism. She he came home one day from work. She was intoxicated. We got into a fight with the landlady. Uh, and in the course of their confrontation, uh, the, the lady either fell over or was hit by Quimbo Apo and, and died. And uh, that led to a trial and he became the first, a murder trial, and he became the first uh, Chinese immigrant or Chinese American or individual of Asian descent to ever be exec- uh, convicted of a capital crime on the East Coast uh, in the United States, and eventually that that uh, that sentence was commuted to 10 years. And I spend time on this only because when George Appo first went to Sing Sing for his second pickpocket conv- conviction in the early uh, in the mid 1870s, uh, he ran into his father in in Sing Sing. Uh, so, uh, in some ways, uh, real life can be stranger and more unbelievable than, than fiction. And, and George Apo's life uh, reflects that. His mother, after that, uh, vanishes. Uh, he was led to believe that she died in an accident at sea, but uh, there, I have some questions that that ever really happened. So, um, and Quimbo Apo then is in and out of prison the rest of his life. Eventually, Uh, ends up, to make a very long story short, uh, in the state asylum for the criminally insane, uh, gets eventually transferred to a new facility in the 1890s, uh, called the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which is located up in Beacon, New York, up the Hudson River. And ironically, again, uh, he runs into George Apo, uh, at that institution uh, near the end of his life. And he eventually dies there and he's buried in an unmarked grave, uh, today out outside of the, uh, uh what, what was then the prison facilities.
1: Speaking of unmarked graves, I, I believe there's a, a reference to Hart Island in uh, your book. Uh-huh.
2: There is. Yes.
1: What, what is that?
2: So, uh, that gets to the questions, uh, the questions about um, George Appo's, um, the different kinds of incarceration uh, experiences uh, he endured. So in, when George Apple was about 15, there's always a little bit of confusion in his autobiography about his precise age because he, he thought he was born in 1858. But in fact, uh, I found his birth certificate and his birth registrar and his baptismal certificate. Uh, and he is baptized in a Roman Catholic church. Um, and he, so he was born in 1856. so always a little bit, he's always two years older than he thinks. Uh, so in 1871, when he's about 15 years old, he's arrested for, for pickpocketing. This is the first time that he's arrested for pickpocketing. And he's sentenced, uh, to the school ship Mercury, which was a reform experiment, uh, very much ahead of its time, almost a kind of progressive era reform institution that, Function in New York between 1869 and 1875 and young boys uh, and they were only boys uh, usually between the uh, under the age of 16 uh, who had been who were usually sentenced to prison or to the uh, penitentiary on Black balls Island uh, were sentenced to the schoolship Mercury Uh, where they would be trained in seamanship and eventually go on a trip uh, across the Atlantic uh, to the Canary Islands and the Madeira Islands down to Brazil and then up to the Caribbean and then back up to New York, where they would learn the different uh, techniques related to seamanship and then hopefully be trained to go into the merchant marine. Well, when they were waiting for the ship to to dock, uh, to come back, uh, or for enough uh, young boys to be able to be put on the ship, uh, they were employed as grave diggers uh, over on Hart Island, uh, which shortly after it was purchased by the city of New York in uh, the late 1860s, um, became the the massive potter's field where New York buried uh, the city's deceased, homeless, unknown, or, or unwanted citizens. And so that was George Apo's Connection with uh, with Hard Island.
1: That's unbelievable. It really is. Um, You uh, prefaced your remarks by describing this 99-page document that was written by George Appo's, and both you and I, offline so to speak, pondered as to why he might have written that. Um, Any further thoughts on what was his intention, his motivation to? to write this document?
2: Uh, sure. Well, we can only speculate because he never uh, expressly explains the the origins uh, of the document. And the, the manuscript, the 99-page typewritten document, is just sitting in a folder in the Society for the Prevention of Crime papers, which is a private, uh, reform-based organization founded in the 18... Uh, originally in the 1870s, but by the 1890s, it had become... Uh, more active force uh, associated with uh, the Reverend Charles Parkers, uh, the anti-Tammany reformer, uh, and was involved in various kinds of anti-gambling, anti-opium programs during the 1890s and early 20th century. And when Apo uh, eventually was released from the, the Matawan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, uh, he decided uh, in his own words to turn a new leaf and wanted to avoid uh, engaging in any more underworld or criminal activities uh, and began cooperating with the SPC. And so I think we can assume that at some point uh, in the 19 teens, 1913, 1914, 1915, uh, that someone approached APO and asked him or encouraged him uh, to write uh, about his life story, that he had this interesting tale to tell and that uh, he should do so, And uh, which, is, is, which is what he did. And it, it is a very crude document. As I mentioned, 99 pages, only six paragraph breaks. Uh, it's written in a stream of consciousness format many of the details are out of chronological order so it's at first difficult to figure out when certain events are are happening Uh, but i I was able to corroborate most of, of the events that he describes he may be off by a year or two or he may be off by a few blocks if he gives an address or certain events are not as i said in the right chronological order but but many of the people he describes and many of the events he narrates are, are all verifiable in other criminal records or even newspaper accounts. Um, so again, this provides a, a unique first-person account of a historical life, a historical experience that really doesn't have uh, doesn't get told very much, especially in the 19th century.
1: Did he write at all about? How not to get your pockets picked, or you know, to become a victim of uh, any of the criminal activities that he was involved in.
2: Uh, not not so much. Uh, no, he never gave those kinds of, of expressed warnings. Uh, it was it was more. Uh, it was pretty much a straight narrative about his individual experiences, and and near the end of the of the document, he starts to reminisce a little bit about. Uh, his philosophy in life and how he functioned within the particular criminal subcultures that uh, that he lived and operated. And he, he takes great pride uh, in calling himself a good fella. Uh, and this is one of the earliest references to that term uh, that became uh, much more famous in the 20th century, especially with the movie Goodfellas. Uh, where he describes himself as someone who has a a certain sense of loyalty to his uh, fellow pickpockets, his uh, fellow operatives in the green goods game, uh, just those working in his uh, underworld universe, that they had their own special language or argo, they had their own special value system, they didn't cooperate with the police, they didn't rat on one another, sort of many of the same kinds of, uh, informal structures that we associate with, uh, so-called organized crime in, in, in the 20th century. So again, we see some of the origins of certain kinds of 20th and 21st century behaviors uh, originating here in 19th century New York.
1: What was the green goods game?
2: Ah, the green goods game. Uh, what, uh, Alan Pinkerton, probably America's most famous 19th century detective, called the most uh, remunerative of all swindles. (laughs) Uh, This was a very elaborate confidence game, uh, and it it worked something like this. Um, Operators who were largely uh, located in New York or the New York metropolitan area Would send out letters, what what they called circulars, uh, throughout the United States uh, to individuals that they thought would be susceptible to this uh, this scheme. Uh, Oftentimes people who had gone bankrupt or who had uh, mortgage problems. uh, And they claimed in these circulars that they had possessed or stolen or gained control of uh, discarded currency engraving plates, and that they could manufacture uh, counterfeit money that looked just like the real greenbacks or green goods, hence the name. And they would offer these, uh, these this counterfeit money at cut rate prices. So for $100, you could get 600 to to $1,000 worth of, of counter, counterfeit notes. Um, and if you purchase the maximum, Uh, which would have been, give or take, uh, about uh, well over a $1,000, you would have what they called states' rights in the area. So they wouldn't sell it to anybody in your immediate area. And so if you were interested in this, uh, and all kinds of people would be interested in this if you're down on your luck or gone bankrupt or you're a businessman looking for a quick infusion of uh, of cash, Uh, Apple even described the... African-American minister from the South uh, who was one of their victims coming up because he wanted to build a church uh, for his congregation. Uh, So the interested parties or or the guy or the come on, as they were were called, uh, were instructed to travel to New York. They would meet them at a hotel uh, in the New York metropolitan area. They would be met by a a bunco steer, uh, and that was what George Apple was, who would then Steer them uh, to uh, a turning joint, as they called it, uh, another hotel usually, uh, where they would meet uh, the old gentleman, who would describe and arrange the the, the transaction. Uh, they would display the goods on a on a table. Uh, in fact, it was real uh, legal tender that they were displaying, so of course it looked real, um, and and the Usually then they agreed to make the purchase. And in the process, in the transaction as it unfolded, uh, when the victim would turn their back on the uh, goods, uh, somebody would, uh, there would be a moving panel behind the wall, they would switch the bag or the satchel uh, and replace uh, the the satchel with another bag. If they got suspicious, uh, Then they they were told not to open the goods because the cops were were looking out for this. Uh, If they got suspicious, uh, they oftentimes had a a tailor, as they call them, uh, someone who was was following them, who would then, uh, sometimes dressed as a cop, who would tell them to get out of town. And uh, in most cases, they just did what they were told, didn't open the bag, got home to open the bag, and there it would be filled with uh, blank paper, uh, a brick uh, and sometimes sawdust <laughs> and in fact in the early days it was called the sawdust game and so here they were humiliated empty-handed and not able to protest because they had in fact been guilty of attempting to defraud the federal government. So it was, a, it was a, an extremely uh, complicated game and, and the most successful uh, operations required a considerable amount of finance. You usually had to display at least 1000 sometimes as much as $10,000 worth of legal tender. So you needed to have access to a great deal of cash. Um, and it required a, cert- a great deal of, of organization. Uh, we don't have precise records about the amount of money that was made, but according to the, to the most successful operators, uh, they claim that they had fortunes in excess of $100,000, which would be well over $2 million in, in contemporary uh, money. Um, and even someone like uh, uh, a low-level operator, a steerer like George Apo would earn as much as 30 to to $100 uh, in a day, which was much more safe and lucrative than uh, picking pick, pick people's pockets. And in many ways, the, the green goods game reflected how criminal activities were changing in the second half of the 19th century, especially after the Civil War, because uh, the the whole con was facilitated by such new institutions as the Transcontinental Railroad that allowed people to move quickly all across the country, new mass communication systems facilitated by the the telegraph and the Continental Postal Service. with the Civil War, for the first time, you have a unified national currency. The, the Greenback Act that was passed during uh, the Civil War, so now you have have an actual national currency. Uh, and then the the changing patterns of urban leisure, uh, with the, the rise of, of dives, as they were called, and opium dens, and this all of this facilitated um, a, a kind of new national. Uh, underground or informal economy that emerges uh, in the 1870s, 1880s, well into the 1890s.
1: In, in the few uh, seconds that we have left, uh, how could one of our listeners uh, pick up a copy of The Pickpockets Tale? Hopefully, they'll do that legally. Um, <laughs> do you have a website? Or, uh, well,
2: the, uh, the, I think the quickest place is to go to WW Norton. Uh, that's my publisher, uh, and uh, you can get it right there uh, on, on their website.
1: Well, it, it, this has been fascinating, and, and the fact that it has a connection to Heart Island is incredible. And uh, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. Thank you very much, Professor Guilfoyle.
2: And thank you very much for having me and for your interest in George
0: Georgia. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers website, or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island.